0: Communities are asking for recognition, they're asking for consultation and reciprocity enshrined in how formal agencies and governments interface with communities in disaster response and planning.
1: We really know that the one-size-fits-all, when someone's dispensed to deal with an issue, it's not necessarily going to fit every community that is within that area, and definitely not on a state or nationwide basis. You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney.
2: Good evening, everyone, and thanks for joining us tonight for this event on preparing for the unpredictable, which focuses on the role of spontaneous and volunteer community organizing and reducing risk in the midst of climate disasters. I'm David Schlossberg. I'm the director of the Sydney Environment Institute and a professor of environmental politics at the University of Sydney. I want to start by acknowledging that I live and work on uh, Gadigal land, The University of Sydney and the Sydney Environment Institute sit uh, on the land of the Gadigal uh, of the Eora Nation. Their lands were taken without consent, without treaty, without voice. Sovereignty over place was never ceded, um, nor was decision-making about that place. So we acknowledge elders and the knowledge that they hold, uh, and tonight in particular acknowledge uh, knowledge about how to live sustainably with lands and waters, and knowledge about how to respond to crises with resilience. The Sydney Environment Institute is an active supporter of the yes vote uh, on the question of an indigenous voice to the federal government, in part to require more consultation on legislation and initiatives that would otherwise continue to undermine environments and indigenous connection to place. Um, Next week, next Friday, the 13th of October, Friday the 13th, makes sense, um, is the UN's International Day for Disaster Risk Reduction. So we thought we would get a jump on that by holding this event uh, to talk about a Sydney Environment Institute project that's funded by the New South Wales uh, Disaster Risk Reduction Fund. So the first headline I read this morning uh, in The Guardian was Victorian bushfire warnings downgraded replaced by flood warnings and water rescue. Two of the past four days um, have been heat records in Sydney. Um, both over 35 degrees, over 37 uh, in Penrith. We've already had multiple bushfires in New South Wales and Victoria, uh, including home losses on the South Coast last night. Every time it rains, there's now potential for flash flooding. Every time it heats up, there's potential for fire and the health impacts on those who can't afford air conditioning. And anxiety about those climate-changing, fossil-fueled events is everywhere. So one of the things that we've discussed at the Sydney Environment Institute is the shift from a focus on single events, single shock events, and then that usual recovery and response cycle, right? You have a disaster, there's a response, there's some kind of recovery, some kind of reconstruction, and then more disaster preparedness, hopefully, and some resilience development, disaster risk reduction, before the next disaster hits. But we don't really have that anymore. We don't really have that luxury anymore, because we go from major event to major event in the span of a day or a week. And then we have often overlapping and converging major events like the fires and flooding this morning. Or as we had in the Northern Rivers, we have a thousand year flood followed two weeks later by a hundred year flood in the middle of a pandemic. We don't have an event and then recovery and then preparation and event. We have converging crises, we have constant turbulence. Um, We have this sense and experience of constantly being unsettled. So in the midst of that experience of turbulence, in the midst of the events we've heard so much about um, here in Australia, one of the constants and one of the positives has been the way that communities have responded. Neighbors helping neighbors, groups coming together um, to organize, sometimes spontaneously, sometimes as part of some previous preparation, to be both first responders and long-time aids to recovery. Right? People in tinnies rescuing people from their roofs, people running into burning forests to save animals, groups of neighbors going house to house to help clean after disasters. Communities have become, out of necessity, their own disaster response and continue to plan to be their own disaster risk reduction in the future. And that's what we want to talk about tonight. So over the last year, with funding from the New South Wales Disaster Risk Reduction Fund, a broad multidisciplinary research team based at the Sydney Environment Institute, along with partners in the Blue Mountains, in Hawkesbury, uh, and in Northern Rivers, have been studying the self-organizing community systems that responded to bushfires uh, and flooding In recent years. So with these community-based partners and researchers, we've been examining community groups who coordinated information, labor, funding, and everything else in response to these shock events, often in the absence of more formal emergency response and government organizations. So the team has done extensive interviews, followed up with community-based networking events uh, in these three communities, and we just want to talk a bit about what we've learned uh, what such community-based action um, can do to reduce disaster risk in the short-term, uh, as well as what lessons might be there for more longer-term response, recovery, resilience, adaptation, both in and beyond these communities. So we have three speakers tonight who I'll introduce now. Uh, Dr. Scott Weber, Webster sorry, is a post-doctor- postdoctoral research fellow with the Sydney Environment Institute. Scott's current role is um, a researcher and really he's the project manager uh, on this project we'll be talking about today, uh, investigating how Australian communities self-organized before, during and after the 2019 bushfires and the 20 to 22 floods. Um, Scott's also a researcher who's been um, doing some incredible work with communities on uh, the killing of memory, memoricide as a phenomenon that bears both everyday and more than human dimensions. Next up is Mary Lyons Bucket, who has a passion for building a stronger community in the Hawkesbury region, uh, an area vulnerable to multiple challenges, particularly around climate risk uh, and non-sustainable infringements upon valuable ecosystems and habitats. Mary holds expertise in scientific research, law, and is currently an elected local government representative. And finally, we have Rebecca McNaught, She's a co-leader of the South Golden Beach Community Resilience Team, and is a Plan C board member. Plan C, for those who don't know, is um, previously known as um, Resilience Byron. She's previously worked across Asia, the Pacific, and the Middle East uh, as a climate and disaster advisor to the Red Cross and United Nations. She's currently finishing up her PhD at Griffith University, congratulations, Uh, on disaster and climate change resilience. Uh, in the Pacific Islands and in the northern rivers of New South Wales. So, um, Beck and Mary, maybe we'll start um, with you too and get some community uh, input. So, um, just to give some context of the communities where you live, could you just tell us a little bit about those communities and the specific vulnerabilities in the face of the fires and floods that we've been been, um, facing the last few years? Um, Beck, why don't we start with you?
3: Thanks so much, David. Um, I'd like to acknowledge that I live and work on the land of the Minjongbal people of the Bunjalung Nation in the Northern Rivers. Um, I live in what is now called South Golden Beach uh, in the northern end of the Byron Shire. We're a coastal village um, connected to other villages of New Brighton and Ocean Shores. We did a survey of damage uh, in the aftermath of the floods and estimated over 1,100 properties just in our three villages uh, were impacted by floodwaters, um, and that was in 2022. For some, that meant losing cars and transport and access to their employment. For some, it meant losing the contents of their garages and studios, business equipment. For some, it meant uh, water up to their rafters and very traumatic um, attempts to uh, escape the floodwaters. Um, We had no communication for eight days in the aftermath of the disaster. The highway was cut. The supermarket ran out of food. There was a lack of fuel. Um, So even people that weren't directly affected by the flood were definitely impacted in terms of uh, their food supplies, their access to their employment. Um, So the ripple effects were were huge. Um, What we really saw, I guess, in our community was the fact that, it was often people who had existing underlying vulnerabilities um, that often fell through the cracks. So it might have been elderly people who um, whose usual home care support services um, ceased to exist uh, in some cases for a couple of months after the disasters, um, because their support service people were also flood affected in their, uh, nearby, you know, Mawolumbar and and other cases, other places. We had people undergoing cancer treatment, people on dependent on pain medication, who had their treatments disrupted, uh, people caring for people with disabilities um, who couldn't leave their high needs um, children to visit recovery centers. And so we saw community networks really step up um, to support each other uh, during those times. And I also just think it's really important to say up front that in the Northern Rivers, um, it's a really diverse uh, cross section of communities. Um, so I'll bring one perspective from, from our local community, but I just want to acknowledge that the experiences across the region were really varied and vulnerabilities differ, um, socioeconomic indicators differ, geographies differ. So, um, you know, we often talk about the floods, but uh, there were people cut off for six weeks by landslides. Uh, we saw landslides that were hundreds of metres wide uh engulf entire houses uh we saw areas of lismore woodburn um they were like war war zones um, after not one but two floods as you mentioned david um so even well-prepared businesses houses that were usually outside the flood areas um even in our local community people who had never been flooded before were flooded so i think the magnitude and scale took a lot of people by surprise um a lot of people think of the Byron area as uh, an area of you know, influences and, and movie stars, but it actually holds um, the highest rate of homelessness outside um, Sydney. And um, as you were mentioning, David, the, the, we've experienced a huge amount of compounding disaster impacts in, in recent years. So uh, there was 2017 floods um, at the tail end of Cyclone Debbie. Um, we had bushfires in 2019 in the hinterland. Uh, COVID decimated the arts, tourism, hospitality industry, Um, and then everyone decided they wanted to move to rural areas, so house prices and rents grew exponentially. So there was already a housing crisis before um, the floods, and then the housing stock was really um, impacted further. So I think this question around how we collectively live in and support each other and design support services Within the context of um, compounding events, is um, a really important question.
2: Thanks, Beck. Yeah, I mean, just visiting there last week, seeing that combination of um, the impacts, but um, resilience is the wrong word, but just the strength, really, uh, of people coming back um, was pretty amazing. Mary, uh, what about the Hawkesbury?
1: Thanks, David. And well, to start with, much like Beck, quite quite a few similarities, but also the same thing within our area, quite a diversity of experience and impact uh, that was, um, you know, uh, undertaken by people. Uh, Firstly, just to acknowledge our traditional custodians of the lands within the Hawkesbury are the Darug and Darkin Young people, and I pay my respects to them. Uh, the Hawkesbury area is sometimes people don't understand actually where it is. So I'll just set the context for a minute because it isn't the area of the Hawkesbury River that actually enters the sea, which is up the other end down near Brooklyn. It's centred around the townships of Windsor and Richmond and it goes up into, um, we have over 70% national park here, which is of course part of our contributing factor to bushfire. Uh, that includes the Blue Mountains National Park, uh, the Cat National Park, the Wollamai Park, etc. And so it goes up into the mountains and we adjoin the Blue Mountains uh, up in that mountainous area. So we have a lot of shared experiences with them, just as we have a boundary and we have people who, of course, operate within both sides. Uh, we have... Uh, multiple river systems here, so we've got the Hawkesbury Nepean, uh, the Macdonald River, the Gross River and the Colo River, and so that of course increases our vulnerability to flooding and our very vulnerable infrastructure connected with that river, which is the river crossings that can be bridges, or in fact we have three ferries operating across, which is the transport for people from one side to the other. Uh, We've got a very vast geographical area, uh, but quite a small population. So much of it is bushland and much of the population is centred in the urban areas within those urban areas of course we've got a lot of change unfolding on the periphery of that and that's also a contributing factor to new sort of patterns in flooding because we haven't hadn't actually had a big flood here since 1992 and within that time period there's been a lot of land clearing and a lot of pasture land on our in our adjoining areas which is now hard surfacing so of course that's made us more vulnerable to a lot more runoff and water you know accumulating in that area and impacting uh, many people who have lived along the river for a long time actually said in the floods that they saw flood behaviour they had never seen before. That too, of course, uh, with climate change, of course, we have the very uh, frequent intense rainfalls. In fact, it's raining here now. I don't know if you can hear that, but it's raining quite heavily where I am now in Courageon, And uh, the intense rainfall is adding to the problems our communities are having around localised flash flooding, and that puts a strain on accessibility to services when roads are cut. And it also, of course, has a big impact for a council on how much wear and tear that has on the roads systems so we have to build up with those Uh, again like all the rest of western sydney we're very exposed to the urban heat problems and it gets very hot here and we really need to be addressing that as an urgency which of course we are but it needs to be fast action and action now Uh, in terms of Our other vulnerabilities, we have very poor, we have many areas and they're mostly the most vulnerable areas with very poor telecommunications. Uh, They get cut off easily. It means they're isolated. They often lose power as well. And we've seen within this study, some of the innovative things that communities have come up with to actually address that and to adapt to that. Uh, We've got areas of non-reticulated water and sewer. So maintaining uh, public health, but also maintaining water supply for firefighting and so on is another really big issue for people Uh, we have had cumulative disasters beginning I guess with the black summer bushfires and then uh, after the the first flood was February 2020 and we've had five floods between 2022 and 2020 uh, 2020 and 2022 and of course within that time period we all had the pandemic so there's been this amplification of stresses upon people and a lot of that I think is only being noticed now um yeah so we've got that vulnerability and we've uh you know we've got all the issues that go with that
2: thanks so much Mary I think both Beck and Mary you've pointed out not just the issue of the increasing events, but also the the context around those in which vulnerability is already increasing and the risk um, is increasing as well. So um, let me turn to Scott, because, uh, Scott, you've been working with community members uh, and researchers in the Hawkesbury and the Blue Mountains uh, and in the Northern Rivers um, to look at um, what communities have done, what they've done uh, to respond, and what would actually uh, support communities going forward uh, in the midst of this climate turbulence. So what have we learned so far from the research?
0: Thanks, David. And I'd like to start by acknowledging that I am on Darug land, unceded Darug land myself in what is now known as Western Sydney too. Uh, so I pay respects to elders, past and present and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Um, so clearly, as Mary and Beck have already uh, described and highlighted, there are quite significant differences across the three disaster affected regions that we have engaged with, which applies to the Blue Mountains as well, uh, as well as significant variation internally, um, which is, it's been one of the delights, I guess, of, of this project to learn about the various intricacies of the communities uh, within these regions. However, despite these differences, there are some strong common themes that do reoccur. Um, across all three, which underscores the their importance for community-organized disaster response and uh, adaptation. So firstly, local knowledge and pre-existing social connection or social infrastructure is essential in enabling spontaneous community actions and interventions. And this was overwhelmingly <laughs> emphasized. Um, by local knowledge, I mean the knowledge that comes from being situated in place often for a long time. So close familiarity with the physical landscape as well as its inhabitants. And this ranges from knowing things like street layouts and how they change under different conditions to knowing where people live and what specific needs and resources or skills they have. Social infrastructure is what brings people together and fosters these localized networks that were so effectively drawn upon in times of disaster. So in many cases, these networks were centered around quite ordinary sites like schools, like sports clubs and other networks around recreational activities, places of worship, of course, as well as local community pages on Facebook in particular. In some cases, they were forged already to address other local causes and needs, such as improving school crossings in the Hawkesbury to providing food to people for providing food to those uh, in need, uh, supporting wildlife care, various political and environmental causes, as well as, as Beck in particular highlighted, those networks that do tend to emerge around shared experiences of marginalisation and social disadvantage, in particular First Nations communities, LGBTQI communities, uh, experiences of disability and so forth. So local knowledge and social infrastructure are interrelated. In some respects, they co-constitute each other, but it is important to emphasize local knowledge in particular, as this also relates to the other key finding of what we've learned from from this project, which is that perceptions that maintain disconnections or distrust between communities and the formal emergency management sector are a risk impeding disaster risk reduction. And these perceptions include a lack of recognition or consultation with local knowledge and community responses, as well as a lack of reciprocity in the sharing of information and genuine collaboration. There is a strong underlying uh, feeling that local knowledge is not seen as legitimate knowledge, which manifests in a lack of engagement with community responses already on the ground. Uh, It manifests in the duplication of efforts or energies or resources Reduced effectiveness of or efficiency of formal responses that do not draw upon this uh, up, draw upon local knowledge and decisions made against local advice. Participants also noted that fundamental differences in the organizing principles, whereby community responses are more decentralized than the command and control structures of formal agencies, means that community responses are only legible as chaos with no clear entry points uh, by these agencies. And this disregards the strengths of agility and nimbleness that enabled community interventions to make crucial, even life-saving support during the floods and fires. The instances where agencies did consult and engage with local knowledge, such as dropping in on spontaneous hubs to be debriefed about the local situation, often did not involve the reciprocal sharing of knowledge or the opening up of communication pathways. So in this sense, community knowledge is seen as a resource to be extracted uh, rather than a sort of two-way sharing of information and collaboration. Participants also felt that they were perceived as risks or as cowboys by the emergency management sector. And in this sense, the specter of liability risk shapes um, interactions with agencies appearing more concerned concerned with ensuring they're not seen to encourage risky behavior rather than working together to address the needs that required the need for such so-called risky behavior. So in short, what we have learned is that community-led disaster response and adaptation must be recognized as essential. And to achieve this, it must be done through tangible shifts in how its foundations and local knowledge and social infrastructure are engaged with and supported at the interface with formal agencies and different levels of government.
2: Thanks, Scott. And I mean, I think one of the things that really, I don't know, surprise is the right word, but really struck us was just the consistency of the responses. I mean, this is over 70 interviews, right? And we really are getting um, the same kind of responses in all three communities around um, these questions of um, recognition, the validity of the knowledge uh, and that. So thanks for that. Um, Back, let me turn back to you, because Scott talked about the need um, for recognition, right? Recognition of community knowledge, recognition of that social infrastructure that's already in place uh, and practice. Can you uh, speak a bit uh, to that in the Northern Rivers and the impact?
3: Yeah, thanks. Um, look, I, I mean, am I, I often am a little bit surprised. Um, I, when working internationally and working across Asia, Pacific, Middle East, and thinking about the Sendai framework for disaster risk reduction, community involvement is actually the holy grail that everyone's working towards. Um, So I do find um, this sort of culture clash quite interesting um, to watch uh, in Australia. Um, As I said, I think my own PhD research um, really confirms a lot of these um, elements that you're discussing um, there. And I think... I often go back to the example of, um, you know, the, the differences in approaches and the value add of the formal and the informal I, I, is evidenced in communities and emergency services having um, different definitions of the same um, term. So when you think about welfare checks, for example, um, for emergency services, a welfare check is um, takes place to ascertain whether someone is um, dead or alive, they need hospitalisation, they need immediate rescuing, they need immediate, you know, support. Um, a welfare check in the eyes of a connected community is whether your neighbour needs a casserole, um, whether your friend down the street needs their kids looking after so they can get to the recovery centre, or whether an elderly resident who, you know, is quite ill needs assistance in wiping their precious china clean. Government is never going to provide those sorts of things. Um, and, and one service doesn't negate the other. And, and I think it's really important to look at what the value adds are and the roles are of different entities in this space. Um, I think the you were talking about information in community responses. I think it's really valuable. So to, in order to have needs-based recovery initiatives rather than cookie-cutter approaches, um, you know, the, the needs are so different between different communities and valuing and connecting with local knowledge and systems has a really detrimental impact. Um, And we saw that, you know, in the flood response and recovery that, you know, there were, there were recovery decisions being made in Sydney eight hours away (laughs) without local representatives at the table. And so I think this two way information flow is really important and how information is shared with communities is really important so you know we've seen the scaling back of the resilient homes initiative has been incredibly re-traumatizing for people in this area Um, but we also know that people receive information in different ways about recovery and so I think a lot of assumptions are made about you know just jump online and, and access this grant application well you know, if, if I'm 86-year-old and I'm on my own and I have no family support, who's, who, how, how are they going to do that? Um, so I think we, that, that two-way information flow is, is very important and how structures are created or how forums are created to link, I guess, that, that information to um, the formal responses is, is really important to, to consider into the future.
2: Mary, what about from the Hawkesbury, this question of recognition of local knowledge, that local knowledge that's held and where that goes or doesn't go?
1: It's a great question. Of course, you can't—you just can't surpass local knowledge for assisting in so many of these areas. But um, first of all, I'd just like to say that I, I gather all of us, and certainly myself, have the greatest respect and appreciation for what our emergency services do uh, within our community. Of course, these are our neighbours and our peers, and they're mostly volunteer. And it's not—I I think it's very sad that some issues have. Uh, emerged where those people have felt targeted by people who were dissatisfied with perhaps the command coming from, as Beck said, a long way away and somebody saying, and I think I just wanted to make that clear, that we really appreciate that. And the same goes for the formalised responses that come out of state agencies and so on. We know that people are always doing their best. But the unfortunate thing that if those things don't intersect to capture the knowledge that local people may be able to say, we really know that the one size fits all. When someone's dispensed to deal with an issue, it's not necessarily going to fit every community that is within that area and definitely not on a state or nationwide basis. So I think that the dialogue needs to continue. I think respecting local people and really letting them know, look, we really value what you can tell us about how we can do things better. Uh, you can't beat that particularly, I think, around flooding because we've got, you know, generations of people who've lived on the Hawkesbury River and have seen things and they can tell you the tiniest detail that could actually make such a huge difference. But until we have a mechanism to capture that, uh, there seems to be some sort of... um, Perception that that threatens the uh, autonomy or the control of these formalised systems and we wouldn't want to see that, uh, they don't want to see that but I, I think rather than running in silos alongside each other we can get some sort of intersection of all of that so the knowledge is in there and it can be channelled into where it needs to go to give a better result.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point about emergency services. And, and we didn't engage um, in this project with doing interviews with emergency services, but we did in a prior project and um, brought together people from a variety of first responders and agencies. And um, the, the responses were almost the same as we're getting here in communities, right? Um, it, where folks told us, well, this is the first time we've actually been debriefed as a group. No one's done this before. And so that knowledge that they held after responding to a flood event was not being taken up um, further. So they felt the same way that the community members did in terms of um, not having that important knowledge uh, of the everyday response uh, incorporated later on in risk reduction. Um, but Scott, um, let's try and turn this into a more positive, right? So when, what are communities looking for? What are people suggesting? Um, what is this knowledge suggesting um, uh, You know, just in terms of, of what folks who have experienced and continue to experience this kind of turbulence, what do they want um, from government? What do they want from formal emergency response agencies?
0: Thanks, David, and I'll also echo what Mary was just saying about the the formal emergency management services and so forth. Um, As I mentioned before, communities are asking for recognition, they're asking for consultation, and reciprocity enshrined in how formal agencies and governments interface with communities in disaster response and planning. And I think it's important to labour that point because despite a lot of the critiques, the degrees of critiques that we did hear from our participants on the performance of formal emergency management services and so forth, very few responded in terms of solutions or suggestions with saying they should not be involved at all. Most of the solutions are envisioning working together, um, drawing upon the strengths of communities, uh, which is recognised as something that they can do in which uh, government and uh, um, formal emergency management services cannot necessarily do. Um, So it's important to labour that point, I think. And so this could include decision making that meaningfully integrates community voices, As well as collaborative and streamlined communication pathways and we've had suggestions about how that could be between formal agencies and community based wardens or street coordinators or even those who fulfilled spontaneous liaison roles in the past and we had quite a few of those. Um, There is a desire for relationship building uh, and that is echoed in critiques of short-term contracts for particularly recovery officers but other personnel in these disaster-affected regions which are seen as an obstacle where you have to start over again and build relationships again and yeah Um, so a desire for relationship building in fact what we have learned is that collaborations with formal agencies and governments that were positive and were seen as effective tended to be when community members had personal connections with who they worked with communities also want stronger support for preparation broadly and notably this includes supporting initiatives that either establish or strengthen the forms of social infrastructure and local knowledge that we've been mentioning but this must be tailored to the specific needs and characters of different communities so it really cannot be a one-size-fits-all approach which both Mary and Beck have already spoken to as well and it must be achieved in ways that are not obstructive to what makes community responses effective in the first place. So while formalization in particular, as a form of recognition was seen as a solution for some in the ways it can provide access to, to funding and other benefits, it was also critiqued for the ways in which it can impose structures and burdens uh, burdens on that negate the, the effectiveness of commu- uh, decentralized community responses in particular. Competitive grant schemes as well, were especially critiqued uh, for fostering tensions within communities uh, that in effect weaken the social foundations that are drawn upon for community responses in times of crisis. But of course, there was also uh, support for preparation also means investments in conventional infrastructure, what we might call that, such as improving roads, bridges and telecommunications coverage, especially in remote and isolated communities uh, and areas or supporting alternatives that communities have devised to circumvent these issues, such as the UHF radio networks that we know are being developed in both the Hawkesbury and the Northern Rivers. In some cases, conventional and social infrastructure are combined, such as through proposed readiness activities that combine uh, practice evacuations with community fates attached to the event so people become familiar with evacuation routes, but also get to know each other and learn who else is in the area. Those involved in community-led disaster response and adaptation want opportunities for peer learning and skill-sharing between themselves. In many respects, the people involved in these efforts are overwhelmed and exhausted, and so there is a strong desire to prevent the duplication of efforts and energies. There's also hope to break down silos of knowledge, especially in communities that are quite geographically dispersed and to mitigate having to learn as you go by drawing upon the experiences of others. For example, on multiple occasions in the Hawkesbury, I was told by many people that they feel like pros now when it comes to their readiness strategies. Um, It was a point of pride, in fact. Um, And that knowledge is is so valuable for other communities uh, who should not have to go through almost half a dozen floods on top of a catastrophic fire season within a three year period just to reach that same level of preparedness. There is a distinct lack of enthusiasm for conventional workshops, as well as generalized toolkits or models. Both of these are quite typical outputs for government funded research projects like this one. Um, So our workshops were reconceived to be small scale versions of these types of peer learning gatherings. And there's certainly further interest expressed in expanding that to regional and even cross regional scopes. Meanwhile, our toolkit will be a series of vignettes that capture the experiences and challenges of various community organized actions. So others do not have to learn as they go as much if they find themselves having to undertake similar actions in future disasters. So the importance of community engaged research in particular is highlighted here, particularly in the way in which we have worked with our community partners and our community fellows like Mary to reconceive these outputs uh, to suit this feedback. And just as an aside, uh, one thing, it would be remiss not to mention that climate change certainly was on the minds of a lot of our participants too. So when we asked what can governments do uh, to support them, action on climate change was a fairly common response as well.
2: Yeah, crucial point. Um, And I also really appreciated community members not wanting to do another workshop or have another toolkit. They wanted fets and festivals. Uh, and just ways of sharing knowledge in different ways, which is really amazing. Um, Mary, uh, you have an interesting position because you've been working with us on the research, but at the same time, obviously, you sit um, in local government uh, as well. Um, So maybe you can sort of talk about what you would hope to see more of from local government uh, in terms of how they can sit in between communities uh, and some of these more formal agencies.
1: Yes, uh, that's a really good question because, of course, local government does sit closest to the people in what it delivers, uh, everyday needs of the people are met by local government. And as Scott said, the uh, you know, the cumulative... Um, Disasters have in fact given us a good opportunity to improve so much around how local government reacts. If something was learned from each experience and that made it easier for the next time to deliver something uh, better, that's in terms of an operational sense. So for a council to deliver services and so on, that was very beneficial if there can be an upside to it. But, of course, what local government is going to have to do is it will have to transition away from where there's been a heavily uh, enforced grant uh, program of providing money for people to go out and do outreach and so on and that's just not financially sustainable for governments to keep going all the time so we we will have to put in uh, other systems around that so what I would like to see is I would like to see A really um, genuine, authentic uh, conversation with our community members. So we know what they say they'd like to do. I'd like to see local government trust in them to have autonomy over the projects and the initiatives that they come up with, not to then go and place a whole lot of rules around them that make it more difficult for them to actually achieve what they have seen as their vision of achieving. So I think having the trust in the community to come up with an idea and then assisting them supporting them either financially or just with some staff or or in some way, to assisting them to actually achieve what they think will strengthen their community without necessarily interfering. So I think you can have a, a role in that support but not necessarily taking over. And as, as you say, people are so tired of the same old, same old things happening where they go along, they hear the same information, they see the same presentations. Now they want to be able to put out what they've come up with from their community in where they see they can make their improvements. And that's a really important thing to be listened to. And that's what we have to capture and that's what we have to support.
2: Fantastic. And Beck, a view from uh, the Northern Rivers on some sort of examples of uh, of these kinds of partnerships, or
3: yeah. So I'm I'm going to put my Plan C hat on now. Um, the Plan C has been rolling out a community carer and responder program, funded by the New South Wales Government, um, Healthy North Coast, and the Northern Rivers Community Foundation. Um, we've taken more than two hundred and thirty people across um, six local government areas on a journey, um, including three days of content-related training, um, followed by first aid and psychological first aid training. Um, They've uh, been offered mentoring, linking with a broader network of people who have also um, undertaken the training. They're offered additional workshops, community events, um, field visits to deepen understanding on topics that they're interested in. Um, I should say that many of the people joining the training have um, are from existing organisations. So uh, CWA, the RFS volunteers, local community associations come along. Um, 80% of those doing the program have been personally flood affected. Um, a third of them have been bushfire affected. Um, And the program at this point has um, registered 70 separate community resilience projects. Um, So in terms of the content, I think this is really important to distinguish. It's not just about disaster preparedness and hard infrastructure and understanding emergency structures and cleaning gutters, which are all very important. But it's also about um, elements of self-care and nonviolent communication skills and community building approaches. It dives into food and water and energy security and helping people move from a place of trauma to a place of healing and empowerment to take action, Um, be that on an individual level or a family level or a community level or Northern Rivers level. Um, So I recently undertook an evaluation of the program um, and it spoke to the power of moving from a place of fear and dread, um, which often we experience when we're receiving these warnings all the time, (laughs) to a place of empowerment. And I'm going to quote someone here because they said, I became quite isolated in my own struggles in 2022. During the trainings gave me a realisation that other people have adversities as well. As a community, we can come together. We all have experiences and skill sets that we can utilise to overcome our challenges. And so one of the that that was one element is the personal transformations that people are undertaking in a post you know disaster landscape but also one of the most impactful elements was connecting community leaders across the region as a growing network and community leaders are using those connections to feel a sense of solidarity to problem solve to share resources and approaches, to inspire each other and to support each other. And it doesn't matter what organization they're from, connecting people really helps support them. And these invisible elements of social infrastructure are what can be drawn upon when disasters occur. And by investing in this social capital and these connections, um, I I really think it's such an important step to achieving more collective impact at, at scale. Um, And now, based on the fact that um, we we observed that youth were often left out of um, recovery discussions and initiatives, Um, we've um, managed to secure funding to do a pilot around um, a youth-related community carer and responder um, training. So that'll be in development um, with young people from our region um, in the coming um, months. So yeah, I, th- I think that sort of that, that those connections and support to community leaders um, is really important.
2: I think that's fascinating because we hear so much about social cohesion and we and it's sort of generalized, it's community, right? It, it's building community, which is absolutely crucial, but that's a really interesting point about building cohesion across leadership, uh, across communities. And it actually gets to, so here's a nice segue. So I'll turn to the questions um, in the Q um, and A um, people also uh, submitted some questions ahead of time, and I'll try and get to those as well. But I think Mel Taylor's question fits really well to follow up on what you were talking about, Beck. Um, and I'll just read it out: The New South Wales Flood Inquiry suggested the concept of community first responders, different to the official EM volunteers. Do the panelists have some thoughts about how this could be implemented without disenfranchising the official volunteers or overburdening communities?
3: I have to. I have to say, I was surprised or or a bit disappointed about the narrow focus of that. Um, The response phase is actually a really short phase. Um, And yes, there are probably ways of um, linking with formal emergency services and bolstering community preparedness. Um, Obviously that has to be done in in safe ways. Um, But I really feel like the focus should instead be about resilience building and community building and um, you know I, I feel like that sort of misses the point in terms of all of the actions that can be taken um, you know before disasters in recovering for disasters in building community cohesion in creating community events it can be tough work really tough work um, you know bringing community together and and hard work um, volunteering in those spaces so I I think it's really important that we think about it beyond the response phase, to be honest.
2: Mary, did you want to respond to that as well?
1: I do agree with that. But I also do think we have to address how we can better use uh, the community as some first responders, because another issue that we're going to face into the future is that even on a, a state basis, for example, for example, firefighters from here have gone off to help people already. So if in other areas of New South Wales, so if we get a fire here, then we're, we're stretching our resources. And because we have this frequency of disasters occurring and only a limited amount of a volunteer um, force for fires, we've got the fatigue and we've got things like that. And we've also got people in really, really remote locations where perhaps the community could be better uh, equipped, perhaps, or, or given... Uh, you know, a little bit of leeway to actually do some first response in those areas. Obviously, issues around liability are um, are there, but also, of course, if the community is as well prepared, as Beck said, as possible and have that capacity to withstand that sort of thing without having to really be plunged right into the disaster, that would be more ideal.
2: It's interesting. though. There's a really, really interesting question um, from our colleagues uh, in state government. I'm just gonna read it, but it, uh, it's sort of a nice segue from what you just said, Mary. So this is from um, um, Nicola Johnson, Erin Coote-Smith, who's unable to attend. How do we promote and enable this community-led approach when there remains a very strong perception that communities helping themselves in a disaster is not seen, and for me it's seen by who, as community resilience, but instead a failure by government to effectively manage the disaster. Right, so when it's left to communities that's seen Uh, or when communities actually do all of this work, it's seen uh, as a failure. How do we promote that community approach without that sort of um, connotation um, when it comes to the official response?
1: I'll just briefly speak to that. Um, I think that, uh, yes, well, first of all, we know that we can't rely on our government to to be everywhere at once and to do all of that. And I think that we're, because we are lagging in our action on climate change as well in this country, um, that we're sort of not up to where we should be in, in adaptation and so on. And so I think that, yeah, uh, I don't know, as you say, who is seeing that. Yep.
2: But it's a good point, effectively managing the disaster starts with decent uh, climate policy. Uh, Yeah, Scott, you wanna take that?
0: Yeah, um, I think it just comes back to recognizing that community responses are essential. And what that is, is that it's entailed to that sort of tangible shifts, structural shifts in the way in which these sectors, so to speak, uh, engage. And that is overwhelmingly what our participants are telling us, which sort of resonates with what Beck is also saying about you know, the focus on reactionary response may not necessarily be adequate when our participants are telling us, overwhelmingly, again that what they want support in is preparation, what might be called resilience building or adaptation building. Um, so, it, it, as a sort of merged response to both of those questions, um, I, I think it comes back to recognizing that communities are essential in these in this scenario and working out the ways in which. Uh, that interfacing can be used more more effectively.
2: Um, So we had some interesting questions coming um, from folks before we started, and um, it really has more to do with the actual um, self-organizing that we're studying. And one of them uh, was a question that it's interesting to hear about collective decision-making processes in community, but how are those decisions made? Who was involved? What processes do they use? Was it democratic or representative, right, in the midst of disaster, um, making decisions? Uh, back do you want to take that?
3: I think my main message here is that it really depends on the context of each affected area. Um, I can reflect on what happened in our community. I think this is where relationships were essential, that uh, it was democratic in the sense that everyone connected with each other across different organizations within the community. So it was the preschool and it was the school PNC and it was, you know, all all these different community groups all kind of chipping in and and using networks to to work with each other and to respond to the needs as they occurred. it was really uh, such a challenging time and everyone was exhausted. And so I just remember at some point someone saying, well, you know, why don't you do what Malakuta did and, and do a, a, an electoral, you know, they, they use like an electoral roll, um, you know, process and... A, and, and I said, well, who's going to run that? Who's going to do that? You know, so there's sort of these expectations, really high expectations of what can happen um, in, you know, really exceptional circumstances. What we ended up doing was we created a flood debrief event, giving the opportunity for um, community members to come along and talk through, learn from their experiences. Um, used used um, professional facilitators to talk that through. Emergency services, government at different level came and, and listened, and we created a report on that. That went to the New South Wales Flood Inquiry. That created uh, a plan that is still to this day our plan um, for the you know community resilience team. And then we would had been in discussion with Red Cross for a very long time about um, a community resilience team. Um, the flood really i guess necessitated the the, the um, action around that that's been a process of setting that up and, and a committee and extended street network and um, not everyone wants to be involved in these sorts of things but i think being connected to carers groups being connected to people with different needs um, helps input and um, provide, Um, I guess uh, prioritization in terms of what needs to happen and and what can happen um, by the community and creating community connection events and music festivals and spring festivals and things like that has been some of the things that we've focused on.
2: Scott do you want to respond about decision making because you were really immersed in interviews with folks who've been through this.
0: Yeah, there's a lot to respond to in that question, but I am going to focus more on what we have learned about who finds themselves in positions to make those decisions, because what we have learned across the board and there is variation, of course, but um, it tends to be people who have existing roles within communities, who have existing skills, who have existing connections to so to bro- broad aspects of society, the local societies and communities that end up being in these positions. Whether it's people who have skills like teachers or hospitality workers and people skills to actual uh, experience with disasters or risk management or... No, various sort of backgrounds that lend to being able to be in this position and make decisions. So that, that tends, those are the trends that we've observed from everyone that we've spoken to. Uh, and of course, in many respects, sometimes authority in that respect is not neutral. It does tend to lean towards particularly gendered uh, directions, but also respect for, you know, um, different backgrounds and how they lend particular forms of authority to. Communities are not void from those uh, sort of pitfalls. Uh, and the other thing I will respond to, to that question is, uh, it, it was towards the end of the question, as more speaking to do these things like representative uh, and inclusivity matter when you know the stakes are in the middle of a disaster. And what we've experienced is a bit of a mixed bag there and what people have told us some people have mentioned how for example their marginalized identities didn't matter when they were trying to help people and a lot of these sort of conflicts and tensions just evaporated or disappeared for a moment in time when responding to disasters whereas others have certainly spoken to the opposite experience there and in fact it has inhibited and prevented actions that were quite urgent and have been quite traumatic so again it's an uneven there Obviously the experiences of some that felt that their, for example, their queerness disappeared in the moment of trying to help people and people didn't see them as a queer person, it didn't matter. That's something to be valued and respected, but also the counterpoint, the powerful counterpoints to that and how that matters for decision making that's inclusive and mindful of the particular specific needs of different communities and identities is also needs to be respected and observed. So very much a variation there
2: really crucial stuff coming from uh, the folks that were interviewed, really appreciate that. Um, We've got two minutes left, but I want to ask folks, uh, maybe just a quick response from somebody, because I think the question that Mel Taylor's put in the Q&A is crucial, and this is the question we get from our state um, funders as well. What about other communities? What about the communities who haven't yet experienced uh, a flood or a fire? How do we get them on the front foot, right? How do we think about disaster risk reduction?
0: Well, our toolkit that we've imagined as vignettes that are meant to be engaging and capturing these experiences is one way in which uh, to capture attention and to seed ideas for, hey, I can do that in a time of disaster, whilst also alerting to the very likely challenges that they may face in taking on seemingly simple actions like using Facebook to organize in a time of disaster or other things, is one way to approach that, to sort of shift that
2: attention. And that's nice because we, we will say the answer to that will be in our final report, um, yeah. where we'll talk about ways of, uh, of spreading the word, of, um, of bringing some of the learnings that we've had that community members have had um, in these communities to um, well, just out there much more broadly. So yes, people aren't starting from scratch, so they can learn from the experience of others. Um, and other communities and other community organizations, not just the emergency management agencies. Um, So thanks, everyone. Thanks to Mary, to Beck, to Scott. Thanks, everyone, for coming and listening. There'll be more soon. Take care. Be safe.